My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. The reality of owning any property, whether it's brand new, you know, uh, multi-million dollar property is that you are going to have to deal with maintenance and and um, and tenancy issues at some point in time. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shump and in this special episode of Invest Like a Pro presented by Housefinder, we're chatting with buyer's agent Simon Liu. We delve into how to buy a property like a pro as Liu shares with us an experience he had with a client about how he was able to help them buy their first investment property since coming back from overseas and much, much more. We dive right into the topic as Lou shares with us a little background about a client who had been living overseas. This particular client that I recently bought a property for, which uh, which just settled, um, had a bit of a uh, interesting interesting background. Actually, they they've been living overseas for a number of years. Uh, originally, they were from Australia, but they moved moved overseas to to work, and they moved back to Australia around about five years ago, five six years ago. From which then they decided to buy a property to live in in Sydney. So, did they buy this property before they left overseas, or did they have this property just recently when they came back? They actually bought the property while they were still overseas in anticipation of them moving back. There was, uh, I'm not quite sure how many years prior to them moving back that they buy the property, but let's just say it was pre-Sydney boom, which they timed it, you know, knowingly or unknowingly, extremely well. <laughs> um, so, it was a family home. It was in a very nice sort of blue chip area uh, in Sydney. Um, you know, these guys are quite, uh, you know, they're quite financially quite well off working overseas. Uh, you know, they, they were earning decent money, but they recently uh, have some uh, young kids, uh, which they wanted to, you know, grow up in Australia. So they decided to pack up their stuff and, and come back to Australia where where they can, um, uh, you know, find new jobs and, and continue working here. So there are a couple in their, in their mid-40s. They are both, uh, you know, in the financial services industry and they really didn't have much idea about property investing in Australia. You know, they've been overseas for many, many years. You know, they've they've got a, a, a sizable share portfolio. You know, to them, houses have always been 
something to live in and not necessarily to invest. I'm, I'm sure they working in the financial financial industries, you know, they, they know that you can make money through property, but that's just never been their goal or, you know, they've never kind of looked into it. So at what stage did this change? Look, when, when they first reached out, we kind of sat down, you know, had a couple of chats on the phone um, just to work out, you know, where they're at, what they want to do, um, why they're looking in prop, into property, you know, how does it fit into their overall goals, uh, you know, of wealth creation. And from that, you know, I could tell that they were very new and, and they were also very risk adverse. Clients being risk averse tend to jump around a lot when it comes to looking at different things to invest in. Even if their goal is to buy property, they can buy, they can be looking at, you know, Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne or, you know, regional or commercial or developments or, you know, residential houses, units, town, like there's so many different elements to property investing. So our initial chat when they first sat down was A, find out what their goals are and then B, work out a strategy that works towards that goal. And the third thing to look to, to kind of talk to them about is basically, you know, properties that, you know, types of properties to avoid and types of properties that may historically work better in the Australian property market, you know, in terms of growth and as a, as an overall investment. So just really basic fundamental stuff. Once the clients were fully locked into the idea of purchasing a property, it was full speed ahead for Lou. There was a lot, lot of conversation, a lot of questions. So a lot more phone conversations and a lot of questions, you know, about everything property related. And then we, we met up a couple of times as well, you know, just to see each other face to face. And it was more of like a bit of a strategy session where, you know, I, I was kind of like, you know, on a whiteboard showing them different scenarios and, you know, showing them the differences between different cities and different locations and, you know, growth trends historically, looking at different demographics and you know, where there was a lot of planned government infrastructure. So just the really basic fundamentals. And it took a little bit of time for them to, uh, you know, decide, okay, you know, let's get started. Let's go and find a property. And that's when they signed up as a proper client. And, you know, we, we started looking. Their criteria ended up being something that was uh, sub $500,000. They wanted to buy in the Brisbane market. They wanted a suburb that was not... Uh, you know, lower socioeconomic that was not like kind of just, you know, your working class areas. They wanted something more kind of uh, middle, middle class-ish kind of just your typical family suburb. They wanted a lot of those emotional elements as well. Properties that were close to transport, close to trains, close to, you know, major shopping centers in decent school catchment areas, things like that. And they also wanted something that was extremely low maintenance because, like I said before, they were very risk averse and one of their major concerns were ongoing tenancy issues or ongoing maintenance issues. And look, I mean, the reality of owning any property, whether it's brand new multi-million dollar property, is that you are going to have to deal with maintenance and tenancy issues at some point in time. But, you know, there are certain properties that you can buy that just reduces the risk of that happening uh, more frequently and you know it comes down to this a style of the property if you have a property that's just a you know a very standard you know house you know one story house that's brick you know that's uh on no you know there's no major overlay it is not always what house is the fanciest or whether it is two stories sometimes simplicity can be the key from a physical perspective then those would have been more suitable there may be like a fancy, you know, two-story house with, 
you know, a lot of personal touches from the person that built it and, you know, multiple kitchens or things like that. You know what I mean? So it's something that's quite simple. Even though they could spend a lot more money than $500,000, I think for the initial property, they wanted to keep the budget as a bit of a minimum so that they could just kind of test the waters a little bit, you know, make sure the strategy worked out well. And that's when we, we started looking. We started reaching out to our contacts. So, you know, as buyers agents uh, at Housefinder, we tend to focus whatever you're looking at at properties that are distressed. So we really focus on houses that are, or properties that are in situations where, you know, the sellers, they need to sell the property quite urgently. You know, we narrowed down already, you know, a number of suburbs, you know, within around about a 20, 20 to 25 kilometer radius from the CBD. And, or actually within 15 to 20 kilometers, not just, not just within 20 to 25 kilometers. And, you know, when I started getting a lot of these properties, uh, what, what I generally do is I do a lot of research on them before the client sees it. We learn about some of the research that goes into finding these properties and how he determines which properties are the right ones for a particular client. The first thing I look at when I look at any property is that they're not in any major elements that nobody would ever want, you know. So properties that are in like, uh, you know, flood zones, bushfire zones, you know, power lines, you know, obviously main roads, major transport noise corridors. There's no major easements on the property. You know, the block's not like a, a 45 degree slope, um, you know, just like those really major things that we do the the most basic, you know, type of research on. Um, they're not next to anything odd, you know, like maybe like a, a checklist. Sometimes it's, I guess, intuition as well, because, you know, there is no real checklist to make sure that a property isn't next to like a dumping ground, you know, <laughs> you know, or which, which look, I mean, from time to time I do come across, I mean, the you know, in any city, there's, there's places where people dump their rubbish um so you just don't want to be near any of that kind of anomaly type stuff the second thing i look at is our comparable sales you know okay so what is it you know is it a three-bedroom house it is is it a four-bedroom house is it on 600 square meters block uh, 800 square meter is it old is it new is it renovated does it need work and from that i can look at okay within that criteria what are the other properties that have sold in in the surrounding streets in the past three months that are pretty much exactly the same. If it is a three-bedroom house on 600 square meter that's unrenovated, that has, you know, is in a particular pocket of the suburb, you know, then I only compare it to three-bedroom, 600 square meter, like very, very like-for-like as much as I can. And if I ascertain that, you know, the property that I can buy is noticeably lower than some of these surrounding suburbs, then that's another box ticked. Lou shares what exactly he's looking for when he's trying to decide how much a property could possibly rent for. The third thing I look at is how much you can rent for. So again, I look at comparable rentals. You know, how much has um, has some of these other properties been renting for and how much can this property potentially get in rent? And then the fourth thing I look at is the, uh, the amount of value you can do or you can add to that property. So, you know, like I said uh, previously, whether you can add rooms or maybe you can add extra bathrooms or maybe it's got genuine granny flat potential, um, you know, whether you can add sheds or, you know, carports or anything that you can do to the property to increase the rent or to increase the value of the property. And if those boxes are ticked, that's when I pull up data from, uh, you know, RP Data or Price Finder or 
you know any of these online sites and you know check out demographics and vacancy rates and you know check out historical growth check out um you know infrastructure projects government projects in the pipeline um you know just general data related stuff that is conducive to the short and long-term performance of this particular house in this particular suburb and whilst i'm doing all this in the background i'm negotiating with the agent already so you know it's pointless for me to come up with all this data and all this research and only to find out that there's no way that i could buy the property for a price that makes sense so you know it's very important and definitely not before i present a property to a client because if i present a property to a client and tell them yep this house i can buy for five hundred thousand dollars and i can't get it for five hundred thousand dollars then it's a waste of everybody's time so you know after this negotiation i um you know and all those boxes are ticked the numbers are ticked you know all those demographics and 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 data every box is ticked it looks like it's a pretty good deal that stacks up quite well that's when i i put it all together um and i sent it to my client and this particular client took about three properties before they ended up buying the property that they were after. And not saying the other two properties weren't good because I actually had other other clients that bought the, the first two properties that I sent to them um, after the client rejected them. Um, it was really just because there was some element that they didn't feel really comfortable with. And that's like that with all properties. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect property that ticks 100% of the boxes. Like... 90% is probably as good as you're going to get in any property out there. The perks of using a buyer's agent is that sometimes you don't only get them, but their whole team can assist you. After their third property that I sent to them, you know, they were happy with it. We negotiated the price. So that's when I um, I got the contract together. I kind of uh, gave them step by step what they had to do at every particular stage of the property purchase so initially it'd be to sign the contracts you know here are the conditions we're going with here's the price um you know you're obligated to pay x amount of deposit if you don't if you terminate the contract this is your liability like this is what you you're responsible for all that type of stuff and that's when at that point in time that's when i also start introducing some of the people that they would be working with so people like solicitors and you know property managers and you know, building and pest guys. And, you know, at that particular point, I also organize the inspections. So I get my, you know, one of my team members to go out and do a full inspection of the property. And it's not like an inspection where they just walk through and say, oh yeah, it looks all right. You know, it's a pretty good house. You know, take some, a few pictures and that's it. Like when they go through, they, these guys have seen thousands of properties previously, you know, in a past life as well. They were in um, property management themselves. So, you know, they know like all the safety hazards, all the trip hazards, you know, what's going to be an issue when it comes to getting a tenant, you know, what's going to be a problem when it comes to maintaining a tenant and what are the things that will need replacing soon. So, you know, they take a hundred photos of every single defect with the property you know create a report as well and that goes to me and the buyer and the client and once that approval is given if if it's not acceptable then we just move on to the next property and there's no cost to anybody but if they're happy with that then we move on to the building and pest inspection which i also organize and um when we do that the result of that if it comes back with major issues again we can either terminate the contract or we can renegotiate for a better price Coming up after the break, we'll delve into how much of an impact Lou had on his clients. A lot of my clients tell me that we we do a lot of uh, active mentoring as well. 
uh, whether we we know it or not. The outcome of his client's first property. The budget was five hundred thousand, um, but we actually bought this property at uh, just below four hundred thousand. And that's next. I'm Tyne Shum, and you're listening to Invest Like a Pro, presented by Housefinder. find out about some of the intricacies or nuances of property contracts from interstate that you might not know about. Because it was in Queensland, if you submit a contract uh, at X amount and you have a signed and the contract is executed, which means that both you and the seller have signed it, you know, if the contract is subject to certain conditions, there's a time period. So if it's a finance and a building in pest condition and they're both 14 days, which is a standard, you've basically got 14 days to do your due diligence, you do your research. And if for whatever reason you don't want the property within those 14 days, you can terminate that contract, you know, if it's finance related or building and pest related or condition related, and you have no financial loss. So you don't lose your deposit, you don't lose 0.25% or anything like that. You just walk away and you move on to the next property. So during this 14 day period or whatever term we agree to, that's when I do a lot of this research on behalf of the clients just to make sure there's no, no red flags with the house. And, you know, once that box is ticked, we go unconditional. You know, that's when you're basically committed to buying the property. At that point, maybe I would have renegotiated more money off on the building and pest, which I have a pretty, you know, I, I do quite often. Most of the properties that I buy for my clients, I end, I end up getting something out of the building and pest report legitimately not just trying to get like twenty thousand dollars off for no reason depending on the property there are many ways to use the imperfections within a property as a negotiating tool there's different levels of structural issues like some depending on the price that we pay for the property if it was distressed and we bought it below market value then you know maybe some minor issues are acceptable because we paid such a low price for it. But at the same time, we can still use that as, I guess you can say, a bit of ammunition to try and get a better deal to justify why we want a further reduction on the price. So, you know, that's part of my process as well to negotiate on my client's behalf. And then at that point, I will instruct the buyer to pay the second deposit and their obligations from an insurance perspective and help them get the insurance as well. You know, if the house needs needed any work, um, either cosmetically or just teething issues, as I like to call them, uh, you know, I, I usually point them in the right direction in terms of helping them obtain quotes um, on to fix certain things. At that point, I also introduce the property manager or if they have their own property manager, I get them involved, uh, let them know, okay, the property is settling at this certain date and you want to start advertising for a tenant, you know, maybe a week out so or two weeks out. So hopefully you might end up with a tenant at, at settlement date on the date of settlement and also organize things like the pre-settlement inspection and, you know, just give them a lot of advice uh, on, you know, what to do, what you should do in terms of to their benefit to help them, you know, get their cash flow going, you know, to, to make that property work on day one. Lou shares with us how he can be kind of a mentor at times for his clients as he tries to help them through the process of purchasing property. A lot of my clients tell me that we do a lot of active mentoring as well, uh, whether we we know it or not. <laughs> um Look, you can't really buy, a, as a buyer's agent, it's really difficult to buy a property without actually, or for a client at least, without giving them ongoing advice. And, you know, to give that ongoing advice, I guess you need to have credibility yourself, 
in terms of having, you know, built up a portfolio yourself and have been through the trappings of things that can go wrong or things that can go right and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. So I think I inadvertently, you know, do a bit of mentoring for my clients, which I'm hoping (laughs) most of them are happy with. And through every step of the buying process, you know, within the 35 day or the 30 day or the 42 day settlement period there's always little nuances and things that you can do and you shouldn't do to that will work to your advantage you know and every property is a little bit different you know what you should say and what you shouldn't say and you know leaving the building and pest negotiation to a certain date prioritizing you know your requests if you want early access to the property which i also organized after being unconditional you know it's important that we do get early access to you know either fix up any potential teething issues or maybe to advertise earlier to try and get a tenant so you know in this particular case we managed to advertise the property prior to settlement and we actually got a tenant that was ready to start on day one you know that's uh that was a very good outcome for this particular client because you know they were very green and unsure to start with in terms of buying a property so it was a very very good outcome for them we find out about the type of property that it was before they got the tenant in there it wasn't owner-occupied, it was vacant. It was another investor um, that owned the property. Um, the property required no work at all. It was basically ready to rent as is. Property was about 25, 25-ish years old. You know, your regular brick house, it was a four-bedroom house, you know, within 20 kilometers of the CBD on the north side, um, north side of Brisbane. Yeah, you know, as soon as we bought it, we obtained the... As soon as the property went unconditional, we obtained... Uh, not only early access, but also permission to use the existing photos of the sale ad to advertise uh, for a tenant. And, you know, coupled with, you know, I guess me introducing the property manager very early on in the piece, they could start working on, on the property immediately as soon as it was unconditional, you know, get the form sick, which is a document that you sign to engage a, a property manager and all that paperwork out of the way first. And then, you know, get the ad up as soon as possible, get the inspections going, um, and yeah, it was a great outcome where the property didn't need any work. The tenant moved in and it's generating cash flow from day one. Yeah. So with this particular property, did you know why the vendor was selling prior to actually purchasing it? And also, what was the outcome of this deal too? The vendor that was selling was actually a deceased estate. It was owned by an older couple that had that one of them had recently passed away. And it was in the hands of the... I believe the wife and the kids to sell the property. They weren't too interested in, you know, getting the maximum price possible. I think, you know, at that point, you know, obviously with all the emotions of dealing with uh, a recent death, I think they just wanted to, to kind of wash their hands and and move on in in the easiest way possible. So, you know, knowing that scenario, I would immediately think to myself, okay, what's the easiest way I can buy this property that has minimal impact on the sellers. So, you know, when we negotiated early, part of it wasn't, it wasn't just only price driven. It was about, okay, what, what kind of terms and conditions do you want to make it so that you don't have to deal with, um, you know, a lot of shakiness with the whole selling process. So I think that's, that's also very important to understand why properties are selling and and the situations behind it. The previous owners wanted to sell it quickly. So Lou was able to use that to negotiate them down to a great win-win. We basically, because my client was in a very strong financial position, they didn't need really need a finance condition. 
um, they already had pre-approvals so we didn't need the finance condition which was extremely attractive to the seller uh, because in Queensland the finance condition is considered a bit of a get out of contract clause for sellers to get out of a contract through a finance clause you basically just need like a letter from your your mortgage broker to state that you can't get finance and you know there are a lot of a lot of contracts that uh, that crash because you know simply because buyers change their mind and they use the finance condition as an excuse to terminate a contract so because of that i kind of knew this and the selling agent knew this and i was like look we can offer a contract with no finance we want the bmp we want the building and pest because you know my buyers are interstate you know we need to know the condition we're not buying a property blind um so we kept the BMP condition and like 99% of the deals that I, I do, I always at least do, do the building and pest um, because that's super important. But we only did the building and pest condition at 10 days. So normally it's 14 days um, and just the extra four days just maybe reiterated to the seller that, you know, we're genuine, we're not here to waste your time. We, we want to do a building and pest. We want to make sure there's no red flags, major red flags. And if there isn't, we're just happy to continue you know, we're not going to stuff around too much with, you know, trying to ask for $20,000 off on the contract for no reason and all this type of stuff. So that also maybe helped. And I think the other thing that helped was just a slightly shorter settlement. So it was a 30-day settlement, you know, which is auction conditions. Most of the time when you negotiate a private sale, it's, uh, you know, 42 days. But, you know, the fact that we could settle 30 days within 30 days, I guess, again, just gave the sellers another confidence boost that we just wanted to get the deal done and you know we're not here to waste anybody's time so you know i think these conditions helped us also get the price we wanted um you know they were chasing a much higher price initially um but because we were able to move quickly you know not aminar and do 20 inspections before we even made an offer i think that helped us get get the property across the line at a price that we wanted which was definitely below what the research suggests the property was worth. He has said that at Housefinder, they focus predominantly on distressed properties, but that is not always the case. The budget was 500000 um, but we actually bought this property just below 400000 So, But look, I mean, the property wasn't worth five hundred. We didn't buy it that far below market value, but it was definitely worth around the mid-fours. We did get a pretty good deal. And the fact that, you know, look, sometimes getting it distressed and super below market value isn't everything. You know, we, we also had to make sure that the property was, you know, low maintenance and ready to rent and, you know, the cash flow was good as well. Like there's just so many elements that you have to consider. Yeah, even though the value could be huge, like in terms of perceived or, or real value, you know, if you can't rent it out, if you have to spend $50,000 to fix it up, you know, if it's if it's in a really bad location or next to something that's really bad, it's it's meaningless. You know, so so we ha- we have to make sure that uh, that all those elements work. The first property went so well for Lou's client. We find out what they're up to now. We're already talking about the second property, which they're a lot more excited about now because they've gone through the whole process, and I think they it's sort of answered a lot of questions in their mind about whether they should be investing in property and and how they should be doing it. So. You know, it's always exciting to see clients, uh, you know, develop mentally and their confidence as well. And obviously, you know, picking up properties in the process. So their end goal was um, was to achieve passive income once again. You know, a lot of my clients have a very similar goal to achieve passive income. Whether they want to quit the job or not is not something that's consistent across everybody. But 
I think most people want some level of security, especially when they get to a point where, you know, they're a little bit older in life. And, you know, look, I mean, a lot of people, I think, are in the realization that even though they want to work forever, sometimes they physically can't. Or maybe the, the, a situation arises in their life where they don't have the ability to work. And just having passive income, whether it's from property or from anything, really, I think is super important. So these guys, again, wanted passive income. They wanted to achieve it. You know, they're in their mid-40s and they wanted to achieve it within definitely well before retirement age. Um, and just something so that they can help make their retirement more comfortable. Thank you to buyer's agent Simon Liu, our guest on this episode of Invest Like a Pro, presented by Housefinder. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tapiphone. 